0: Paleo nerds, two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds, cause deep time will blow your mind.
1: to it. <laughs> hey, Ray! Oh, there it is. Hi, Dave. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, and spring has arrived. We're just starting to arrive here in Ojai, California. We're recording this March 25th, I believe. Uh, Somewhere yeah. thereabouts.
0: So is spring really spring down there? Uh, it's just, just all one season down there.
1: No, we actually do have four seasons. They are muted <laughs> and mild, well, you know, here actually uh, somebody just posted a picture of not been out to the
0: forest here lately, but skunk cabbage flowers coming up. So really? that's a sign of spring in Southeast Alaska, the skunk flowers. Skunk cabbage, I should say.
1: When I lived on the ocean there in Ketchikan, I saw the most amazing transition. I remember the winter being bleak and and rain blowing horizontally yeah, and gray yeah. and bleak yeah, and gray yeah, and bleak. Yeah, yeah, I know about and that. Then, yeah. And then it would be bleak and then it would be rain. Yeah, right. And the we'd have a break in the rain, yeah. it would still be gray and bleak, but I would look out my window, because this this house that I have is on the ocean, on the inside passage. I would see this dotted line of birds heading north that would go for hours and hours and hours following one another a few inches above the sea and the wave caps. And I'm like, oh my goodness. This is the first evidence of, you know, a northern migration. Yeah. And then I woke up one morning and some jerk had spilled white paint on to the beach in front of my house. And I was so angry. (gasps) Who would do this? And I went down there. (laughs) I think I know what happened here. It was herring eggs by the billions. I was just going to say herring eggs. Right right and i went oh my goodness that's the second sign of spring you so are, i don't know what, what you guys what do you, what is there what is your sign of spring up there? Well, it's it? a skunk
0: Herring cabbage skunk, skunk cabbage coming up in the forest but yeah the uh the when the herrings spawn out in the water and uh, it's that's a really a sign of spring here and all kinds of marine mammals the sea lions start showing up and the killer whales start showing up and it's a great uh, gathering and then the yeah. whales of course the humpback whales and actually, it brings me back around to a thing, Aquilolamna, Aquilolamna. Oh, right,
1: right. You mean the the new bat-winged uh, it's Learjet shark from the Devonian?
0: No, no, no. It's from the Cretaceous, man. It's from the Cretaceous. Very- oh, right,
1: right. Early Cretaceous.
0: No, the late Cretaceous. The very really? late Cretaceous. But that brings up the thing. It's... And I looked. I finally got the paper itself, the scientific paper, so I could drill down deeper. And so, what'd you find out? Well, I found out when I read the paper that they have only tentatively assigned it to the Lamniform sharks because the tail, the tail looks like a great white shark.
1: Okay, but Uh, educate me again: Lamniform and Uniform and Vacuiform.
0: Lamniform are modern-day elasmobranch sharks, so like an open ocean shark that we have today. But as I pointed out to you last week, I said, you know, or in a previous episode, whenever this airs, is that it lacked pelvic fins. And every right, right. every cartilaginous fish, ratfish or uh, a manta ray or shark, has pelvic fins because they practice internal fertilization. They don't right. spew their eggs like a herring. Right. See, there's the connection out into the water. Oh, okay. That's so why I brought it back around. So... But in the paper, it says, it did compare it, saying the only other sharks that have ever lost, that doesn't have any pelvic fins, the only other right. sharks that have Are. lost her Wait for it. The eugeniodontids, which is what the buzzsaw shark belongs oh. to, and the scissor tooth shark. And there's an obscure fossil called Squatinactus, and I looked scissor- at this... Wait,
1: scissor tooth is a destis. Yes. So there's another shark that's no... Yes, this is
0: Yes. There's another shark, uh, Condorictian, known from Bear Gulch, called Squatinactus, which looks right. almost like a tiny version of this. But this is from the Carboniferous, and it does mention that it resembles that. So, because I'm kind of a paleo nerd in shark world, shark freak, and I emailed all my friends, you know, my my sharky friends. So this, what that kind of hints at, Dave, is that maybe. It is related to those Paleozoic forms way back in the Devonian and in the Carboniferous, and then and we're just it, missing the fossil. And then it doesn't show up. This beast doesn't show up again till the Late Cretaceous. It's a big gap in there. So, anyways, this right. shark, which uh, is all other the Lamna, aqualamna. Form, aqualamna doesn't have a dorsal fin either. There are no that, dorsal that thing fin. You
1: hear? Dun, 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 right. dun, 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 which right? slicing through the water. Which. Makes... when it gums you to death cuz it didn't have right. like really weird uh like almost filter feeding mouth right. parts
0: so this really indicates that there's a lot of big big gaps in the fossil record and yeah. it's a lot of exciting stuff to find yeah it's not all done
1: oh of course not i mean when you think about the the odds against any creature from becoming fossilized it's it's phenomenal
0: yeah i know that's why i've, I've
1: made plans <music> When we spoke to Rebecca Hunt, the paleontologist at Dinosaur National Park, all those dinosaurs that ended up on that wall, the dinosaur wall, is a miracle of, even though there's many of them and they're everywhere, it's a miracle of fossilization that you get all these dinosaurs in one place.
0: Yeah, all tumbled up and all chiseled out of that wall and all the dinosaurs that came out of that quarry, that one quarry, special places on the planet, but...
1: Dinosaurs, dinosaurs! Now our next guest today is oh my goodness, um, <laughs> that, what what another rabbit hole? Can, because he's done so much that wasn't even part of dinosaurs or paleontology, but a large part of his life. You could tell he is a total paleo nerd by his great body of works and the murals he's done for the British Museum, the American Natural History Museum, San Diego Museum, all over the world. But you know what he is is helped to do, and I want to find out about this. My dad, a psychiatrist in the 60s, was your Saturday evening cocktail 60s progressive psychiatrist dad in Beverly Hills. Uh, I think I
0: know where you're going with this.
1: Yeah. And he was a subscriber to (gasps) the misogynistic magazine Playboy. Uh, Yes. But he let the Playboy sit on our coffee table in our living room so us kids could thumb through it every week or whatever, every month it came. And, uh, you know, we'd giggle at the naked ladies. Uh, But I think what I enjoyed most were the cartoons. Yes. And there was this really weird cartoon called Little Annie Fanny. (laughs) And Little Annie Fanny was this buxom blonde who always ended up, her clothes somehow always ended up... Somehow missing, yeah. Missing. And it has the same feel of the Mad Magazine cartoon comics. It's that... And so when you realize our next guest, who is uh, amazing, prolific, William Stout. You mentioned his he, name. There it is. He started with the Mad Magazine people and he worked on Little Annie Fanny. And and his comic book style is all reminiscent of those very realistic looking faces and bodies, but but exaggerated and fun. It's just so much fun.
0: Yeah, we're talking about William Stout. I think we could call him Bill. We'll establish that early on. But William Stout is uh, an absolute art hero of mine, a role model for me. I've yeah, met he him. must be. I've met him, and you met him briefly, and you didn't realize yep. who you were talking to, but you probably saw me like, "Oh my god!" So I <laughs> yeah, this, he's one
1: of your art heroes. He's,
0: it's a big fanboy moment for me. So uh, to have him on the show is a real honor. And uh, he's done so much in his career, and he's got a thing that he calls the William Stout Pinball School of Career Planning. which Oh, cool. <laughs>
1: I want to hear about that.
0: Which is, yeah, paying all over the place, and he's done right. about everything you can
1: imagine. And you know what's amazing? Like some of our other uh, guests, he also has worked with George Lucas with Industrial Light Magic, and Steven Spielberg on Dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. So We don't have that on our resume, do we? <laughs> well, no, we know a guy who knows a guy.
0: We know a <laughs> guy who knows a guy. So that counts for something.
1: Well, if, when you think about it, Ray, we are one degree away from Spielberg and Lucas, aren't we?
0: Well, easily a handshake away, as they say, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Call him up, Dave. Call him
1: up. And, uh, Ray, why don't you introduce me to someone I've already met? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, Dave, meet William Stout, artist, master illustrator, production designer, theme park designer, character designer, muralist, author, and many other things. Bill, it is so very kind of you to join Dave and I, the ventriloquist, and I'm a fellow artist. You and I met briefly, well, years ago, you came to one of my talks, and uh, we we actually went and had uh, dinner with this guy, too, afterwards.
2: Yeah. In fact, I tried to meet you... Uh, up in Alaska, my wife and I were uh, on a cruise, and we went to your shop in uh That's Hitchcock. right. That's right. It was just like last year or the year before. There's yeah. this. I came down. There's this little dinosaur
0: drawing that you left me there.
1: <laughs> so Ray, Bill here is one of your idols. He's one of your artist idols of all time. If there's any, so you like before this interview, Bill. He's like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to actually talk to him again. <laughs> well, uh, I, I feel the same way about Ray. So. <laughs> Oh, well, good. It's a mutual admiration society. But the real question is, Bill,
2: are you a paleo nerd? Oh, totally. Total paleo nerd. Yep. Wow. It started when I was three years old. Okay, that's what I was wondering about. When did it start for
0: you? You're a little bit older than me and, and lots older than this young guy here. When did the paleo thing start <laughs> for you?
2: Uh, when I was three years old, it was 1952, and my parents took me to see my very first movie. Uh-huh. This was before we had TV or anything. Uh, it was at the receded drive-in. Uh, they were running a, a revival of, in 1952 of the original 1933 King Kong. Oh, And wow. I think it did damage at a genetic level because I've been <laughs> nuts about dinosaurs ever since. And not long after that, I saw the ride of Spring sequence from Fantasia. Right. That right. sealed the deal. I've been into dinosaurs ever since. So you
0: were one of those kids, you knew your Triceratops, your Stegosaurus, all that good stuff, Jurassic Cretaceous, and, and that kind of thing. And I, I've, read, I've been reading up, because I'm a yeah. huge fan of your work, and I have several of your books, Bill. You mentioned in one of your books, you dedicated
2: one of your books, I think, to Elliot Wittenberg. Yes, my fifth grade teacher. He caught me drawing in class when I should have been listening. <laughs> instead of, and, and I was drawing dinosaurs. You were... Uh, But instead of punishing me, he looked at what I was drawing. He said, do you have any more drawings like that?
1: And the kid next
2: to me said, oh, man, you should see it. He's got a whole book of them. It's all monsters and dinosaurs. And he said, could you bring that book in tomorrow so I could see it? I said, sure. I was just relieved I wasn't getting into trouble. And so uh, actually the book was not finished and and because I admired this teacher so much, I spent the whole rest of the night filling in all the rest of the pages with drawings of dinosaurs. Wow. Um, so I brought it in the next day. Yeah. And from that moment on, he began to give me extracurricular activities involving art. He knew I wanted to be a doctor. So he'd say, Bill, I think the class needs a chart of the human skeletal system. Can you draw that up for us? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think the class needs a chart of the human musculature system. So I was doing cross sections <laughs> of the ear and the eye and the muscles and all this stuff. And what I didn't realize is I was teaching myself anatomy, oh. which was just fantastic. Well, you know. So
0: I if, want to say that uh, the childhood superpower is really where so much of it starts. You got special attention for your artistic skills. I I too have a fifth grade teacher that changed my life, and I started getting these extra assignments. Actually, in kindergarten, I started parlaying my skills, and I would get assigned different things because I could draw. And it I had like, a crush
1: this... on my fifth grade teacher. Does that?
0: <laughs> well, that led to ventriloquism, obviously. But uh, <laughs> but Bill, that's so cool that you dedicated a book. Is uh, Elliot still with us? Do you he, ever? He's
2: passed away, but. Uh... He was still alive when the book came out. So I tracked That's him nice. down to Chatsworth, California, phoned him up and told him I wanted to give him a copy of the book. And it, it was a great evening. And I got the feeling I wasn't the first kid to do this. I oh. think he influenced, you know, inspired tons of kids in his career. He was just fantastic. Well, it's always the great teacher
1: uh, who inspires kids to be, you know, who they are. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, wow. yeah. it would have been uh, easier
2: for him to just put me in the corner and punish me.
0: Yeah. But he didn't. Well, you did you so through high school were you using that art skill and right out of high school you went to the uh, what is now the California Art Institute,
2: right? California Institute of the Arts. Well, I was uh I was a science math major oh. all through school because I was going to be a doctor. Oh. And so my first year at Reseda high school, got a great education. Uh then my family moved to the Thousand Oaks area. And I started attending Thousand Oaks High School. The worst. Oh, I wasn't learning anything. It was horrible. Hmm. Uh, And for example, I had a math teacher. And as an experiment, I turned in the same math homework every day for an entire year. And he never noticed. I just changed the dates. (laughs) So my thought was, oh, my God, I'm going to graduate from high school. I'm going to be two years behind everybody else in med school. There better be something else that I like to do. And I thought, well, I've always drawn all my life. So my very last semester, I switched my major to art. And uh, my family was pretty desperately poor, but I got a perfect scores on my SATs. So getting perfect scores on the SATs and the poverty of my family, the state of California gave me a full four year scholarship to any university I wanted to go to. Oh my god. So my friends thought I was nuts. They said you could go to Harvard, you could go to Yale, you chose an art school? Are you insane? (laughs) Well, all my doctor friends said that was the best decision of my life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I had an aunt who was my algebra teacher in junior high school, but she was also an art teacher. And so she took me to see the two local art schools in the L.A. area, Art Center College of Design and the Chouinard Art Institute, which is also known as CalArts. Well, uh, Art Center was was. To Me, it was so clean and so uptight, and there was even a dress code for students for artists. A dress code, oh, insane! No. Yeah. And so then I went to Chenard, and there was paint on the floor and paint on the walls. And, and I found out that Rick Griffin had gone there. Who and is that kind of seal? Rick Griffin, the creator of Murphy the Surfer for Surfer Magazine. Oh, he wow. also did the psychedelic posters for the film war. Yeah, uh, fa- yep. fantastic letterer, unbelievable letterer. And uh, and then digging deeper, I found out that uh, the animation department was being taught by Disney's nine old men, the nine greatest animators sure, who ever lived. Sure. Sure. Uh, the fashion department was headed by Edith Head, who had won more Oscars for uh, fashion clothing design than yeah, any other costume person design. In yeah. And uh, let's see, uh, Hal Kramer was the head of the illustration department. He was the very first president of the Society of Illustrators of Los Angeles. Uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. It was really, absolutely so, incredible. I was in the right place at the right time for that. Are you? I'm, I'm just curious, Bill.
0: Are you a musician as well? Or do you dabble oh, in music? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I thought maybe. Not a you good did. one, but. Well, <laughs> but- <laughs> it hasn't stopped me either. But now, this is kind of. This is. This is. Uh, you're basically in the Hollywood area, right? Reseda? Yeah, right. What year
2: and-
1: is this about? Is this the mid 60s?
2: Uh, I went to art school 67 to 71, graduated in oh, 71. Oh, I mean man, that had the flower to be. power. Yeah. Oh, in LA, it. what for music? What a place to be. Yeah. yeah. Everybody I could see everybody because if even if they were from San Francisco or England, they would record in LA. Yeah. So and play the Whiskey Go go and, and uh I was a regular at the whiskey, regular at the Starwood, uh all the local clubs. It was wow. just an embarrassment of riches. I put down my pen at 10 p.m. and go, okay, who am I going to see tonight? And I look and it was like Crosby,
1: Stills, Nash, and Jimi Hendrix, everybody,
2: everybody you could think of. And they'd have after-hours clubs too, where I'd see Buffalo Springfield jamming with the Birds. Wow. I look at your art, Bill, your
0: your incredible paleo art, and I can see that kind of psychedelic touch to things. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I think I share the same DNA in a way, you know. I mean, uh, there's that or the little same bit of a, acid. The same. <laughs> well, you know, once you've been there, it, it's it's touched you. You you it's yeah. part of your gestalt, your your very being, and uh, the way you look at the world. But what's trippier than thinking about the prehistoric past, you know? So. But what was your first paid
2: art gig? First paid art gig. Uh, let's see. Well, they had an art bulletin board at Chenard. And one day there was a posting that said, we were looking for an artist to do a cover to a new magazine. It's about witchcraft, horror, supernatural and stuff. I go, oh man, <laughs> that's right up my alley. I'm a big monster kid, you know, grew up with the universal horror films. And so I, I submitted three pictures and one of them got chosen to be the cover of the first issue of that magazine. It was really? a magazine called Coven 13. Right. And when I brought it in, I said, what are you doing for the interiors he said oh the art director is doing those i said can i see them they're horrible the guy could barely hold a pencil It was just awful i said how about if i do the interior illustrations as well oh okay sure so i did the first four covers and the all the illustrations the first four issues of that magazine and it was my first exposure national magazine exposure it was fantastic but back at that time i would take any job that came along I did the very first advertising for Toyota. I did the very first advertising for Taco Bell. They really? ended up drawing posters of white people enjoying Mexican food to show that it was safe to eat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> was it uh, uh, cartoony? Was it like the, your no, cartoon no. style? No, very,
2: very straight line Benson Avenue. Um... Very sort of Bernie Fuchs, Bob Peake wow. type of stuff. So
0: right out of art school, though, you start working for the Tarzan comic with Russ Manning somehow is that I mean right after college yeah
2: well the school had a the illustration department had a great policy which was if you got any professional work on the outside you could turn that in in lieu of your homework oh Oh. so my last two years of art school almost everything I was turning in was professional jobs so it made the segue from academia to the real world absolutely seamless it was a fantastic policy I was a big Edgar Rice Burroughs fan, and I subscribed to a Edgar Rice Burroughs fanzine called Herbdom. Mm-hmm. And during that time, they found an unpublished Edgar Rice Burroughs novel called I Am a Barbarian. It was about uh, the Emperor Caligula, as told uh, by his personal slave. Oh. And so it it was a new first edition, and they got Jeff Jones to illustrate it. And I wasn't real happy with the way he illustrated it, so I did a whole set of my own illustrations I did, I think I did six illustrations plus a cover, and I did each illustration in a different style. I did one in, uh, it was Frank Rosetta style, one Roy Krenkel style, one Al Williamson style, Mm -hmm. one uh, Carmen Infantino. Are these artists I should know, Ray? Yeah, you should know. Yeah, uh, they're like great Silver Age artists and EC artists. And so I did those. I sent them off to Herbdom, and about two years later, they published them. And I got a phone call out of the blue from Russ Manning. Russ was the writer-artist of the Tarzan End of the Apes daily and Sunday strips. He'd also created a comic book called uh, Magnus Robot Fighter. In the newspapers. When there were newspapers, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in the newspapers. Back back when people still read, yes. So uh, he asked me, he loved the illustrations I had done, and he asked me if I would like to be his assistant and man i jumped at the chance because i really admired this guy and he lived out in mojeska canyon so it was normally if if i was driving the speed limit it would be about an hour and a half to two hour drive but i was usually getting there in about 45 minutes there just weren't (laughs) as many cars on the freeway and there weren't as many cops on the freeway i never got a speeding ticket to my amazement because i was averaging 90 miles an hour going back and forth wow wow but uh he taught me so much he taught he taught me have a good work ethic. Uh, I would ink his strips and color the Sundays. And we did uh, three graphic novels together. And uh, more importantly than that, he showed me how to be a good dad. Uh, he had two kids, wow. little kids, a little boy and a little girl. And I watched how he interacted with them. It was completely different with the way my dad interacted with me. He was incredibly thoughtful. And I, I think he made me a much better father for being able to observe the way he treated his kids. Wow. That's really interesting. You, uh, though, when you were
0: working for Russ Manning, uh, you said you were inking his stuff and then right. doing the color. Tell us, he would pencil it out, and then wh- what materials were you using? To, you
2: know, As an artist, I kind of want to know what you were using. Well, he would tightly pencil everything. Uh, he wouldn't allow me to ink Tarzan. He saved inking Tarzan for himself. That was just a personal thing of his. <laughs> but I would ink all the rest. So I'd use regular indie ink and I would use either a Crow Quill or more often I would use the winsor Newton Series 7 number one brush. Uh-huh. That, that was the perfect <laughs> inking brush. I have no oh, really? idea so, what
1: these are. No, but what, oh. what's
0: cool is that he he's not just using pen and ink, you're using a brush and that gives you a much more fluid line, right?
1: More yes, expressive you get line. get just
2: nice, thick, and, thins. Yeah,
1: thick and isn't thin. Yeah. But is the final isn't the final art in the newspaper just colored dots at the end of the day? for all uh, those yes. comic strips
0: yeah it's called CMYK man so yep. uh cyan magenta yellow and then black usually a fourth color thrown in there so, but that's
2: uh half tones dots right yeah so i had a i had a color chart with all those halftone dots printed out Right. And i so i would write codes uh, on the sunday strips to tell the the but but if you were to makers. fill a if you were to
1: fill a basketball or a ball a yell with yellow it would be yellow in the inside completely
2: yellow. There wouldn't be any dots, but- Okay, so uh, if I was doing like a solid yellow, that, that would just, I just put a Y in there with a 100, meaning 100% yellow. Uh, if, if I was doing say a, a, a light green, I'd maybe do a, a yellow 50 and a blue 25. You'd have to know those percentages. Yes, but I had a chart showing me. Right, a but big chart. It- Yeah, I got it. But how did a solid
1: color on your piece of paper turn into dots that I got at home?
2: Oh, they would actually do physical color separations at this new syndicate that uh, sent out the strips. So they had... It already set up that uh, if I was doing, for instance, uh, a light green with a fifty percent yellow and a twenty-five percent blue, they would have the twenty-five percent dot screen in black for that, oh. and they'd have the the fifty percent dot screen in yellow for that. But it would it would all those gradations would go on uh, the four separate plates: the cyan, the magenta, the yellow, and the black. Oh, so a color
1: comic would be printed four times uh, in the machine before it reached yes. my home
2: yeah
0: oh, yeah, wow. well, most of your magazines and everything so, well, this is when we're we're talking with the graphically uh, challenged here bill, but uh but but now, but you know uh Dave knows how it's done, but I'm sure so, most of our listeners
1: are graphically challenged as well, so yeah.
2: now, when we did the graphic novels together, we colored them in a completely different way. We were the first Americans to use the European color system. The way that would work is we'd do the black and white art, we'd have it shot. We'd have the line art on a acetate, and then I'd, I'd take the negative, and I That's would make a, a blue ray. Acetate yeah, is clear, a clear, clear sheet of plastic. Yeah. yeah. So, so then f- that would be the black plate. Then for the red, yellow, blue, uh, I would take the negative of the black plate and print out a pale blue image on a piece of board. Now, uh, I had the right chemicals for that so that I could do that myself, and you use a black light to bring up the blue line and then you would color the blue line and you'd have the acetate on top and you keep flipping it back and forth to make sure everything was in alignment and and we would color we would do the color in either watercolor or gouache and so it made for very clean color it was just beautiful Wow Wow well uh, you subscribe
0: you once uh, in one of your books you mentioned the William stout pinball school of career planning <laughs> exactly, and uh, do you give this lecture often to of, art majors? Uh, all the stuff you did not learn in art school. Well, one
2: of the things I tell them, I said, "There's two paths to fame. There's a slow path and a fast path." If I chose the slow path to fame, maybe I have a attention deficit syndrome, but I like to jump around and try different things. Anything I haven't done that interests me to see if I could do it, if I could pull it off. Now, the fast way to fame is to do the same thing over and over and over. Now, so you get known for that very quickly. But my Bernie Wrightson was a good friend of mine, and I saw how sick he was of drawing Swamp Thing, the character that he created. Right. He'd have to draw hundreds of Swamp Things for fans at conventions. And I thought, man, that's not what I want to do. I want to do different stuff. I want to maybe work in film or, or do posters or do comic books or just whatever strikes me. And, and you have. have. Yeah. Well, that all changed when I... Did my first uh, one man show at the Natural History Museum in LA. It was 45 paintings depicting life in Antarctica from prehistoric times to the present day. And when I finished the 45 paintings, I didn't have that restlessness that I usually have after a job's completed of, okay, what am I going to do next? It was more like, I think I could do this for the rest of my life. Wow. I felt so good doing these paintings. And so I assigned myself another goal, which was a book. My goal is to do 100 oil paintings for a book that will be the very first book depicting the history of life in Antarctica from earliest prehistoric times to the present day. I think it'll be my most important book. Wow. But that was this exhibit before
0: or after this book? This was much after, much later. So this, this is the revolutionary book. Uh, yes. That came out in uh, what 1981. year?
1: 1981. 81. For those of us who can't see on this podcast, Ray, <laughs> this is
2: the book uh, is called "The Dinosaurs: A Fantastic New View of a Lost Era" by William
0: Stout. Uh, Bill, tell me how that came about because that that's just that was a huge book. It changed a lot of people's views on dinosaurs. And
2: in the mid 1970s, uh, my friend Don Glute, he had written a book called "The Dinosaur Dictionary," and Uh, By the end of the 70s, there were so many new dinosaurs that had been discovered, he thought it was time to update the book. Mm -hmm. And his goal was to have at least one picture per listing. And so he asked me if I would do four pictures for the new revised dinosaur dictionary. And I agreed to do four. That turned into 44. (laughs) And while I was doing them, I thought, well, this may be the first and only picture the public ever sees of this animal. So it had better be accurate. So I joined the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, in the mid 70s. And I started uh, attending all their meetings. It, meet, they have a meeting at a different city every year. And they were incredibly, these paleontologists were incredibly generous with uh, their information and stuff. And so the way I would work is I'd try to track down the paleontologist who had discovered the creature that I was illustrating. Mm-hmm. And this was before email. So I would snail mail him Xeroxes of my sketches and, and for his correction. And we'd go back and forth until we were both happy. And my regular publisher, Byron Price, was visiting me from New York and he asked me a question. He said, Bill, if you could do your own book on anything, what would you do? And I thought he was just being conversational. And I said, Yeah, actually, Byron, I have no idea. He and he looked around and saw all these dinosaur dictionary illustrations. He said, Well, would you like to do a book on dinosaurs? I said, Yeah, that, that sounds fun. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> forgot about it. And two months later, Byron calls me up and says, Bill, we got our book deal. Bantam wants to do your dinosaur book. Suddenly I had this gigantic <laughs> project dropped in my lap. And wow. I was like, Oh my God. And originally it was going to be, I think, uh, 80 color pieces and 50 black and whites. And I, with the black and whites, I started doing them in color. And I said, you know, you can just print these in black and white. And, <laughs> and Byron was like, no way. This is too beautiful to print in black and white. So I really upped the ante of of the number of color illustrations, which ended up getting Bantam very excited. And they basically chose that to be their book of the year. One of the reasons I wanted to do that book is because being in the society of vertebrate paleontology, I was learning all kinds of new information about dinosaurs that wasn't getting to the public. So here's a chance to, in one book, encapsulate all that new knowledge and show that dinosaurs weren't stupid. They weren't slow. They were fast. They were intelligent. They took care of their young. And uh, and some of them had feathers. And so it became a very revolutionary book. And now I'm old enough, when I go to SVP meetings, young paleontologists will come up to me and say, you know, I became a paleontologist because when I was a kid, my parents gave me your book.
1: Wow, that is awesome.
0: It
2: doesn't get better than that.
0: Yeah, it's really, really cool. It's such an extraordinary book. Well, you're an older guy like me now. Are you still working full time and you have a work ethic? You work from
2: nine to five or? I, I don't have my old work ethic, which was, <laughs> which was uh, seven days a week, 18 hours a day. Wow. Whoa. Uh, okay. I've, I have grandkids now. And my favorite thing in the world is to play with my grandsons. So when they come over, the work ethic goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Good for you. So wait, I want to find out about how did you end up
1: in Antarctica? I mean, that oh, must have been let's an go back absolute to that. Yeah. so amazing. much to talk about.
2: I was the biggest movie that you'd never want to meet. I would <laughs> see every movie that came out. I go to film festivals. I go Me to movie too. marathons. I'm a cinephile
1: as well. Me too.
2: Yeah, I go to movie uh, marathons where you enter the theater at Friday, yep. and not emerge until Sunday night, and they'd be showing twenty four hours of films of movies and stuff. So anyway, there was a new movie I was going to see. I don't recall what it was, but I was real excited. I was walking up the sidewalk in Hollywood, and a friend of mine spotted me from his car. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, He comes from an illustrious family. His grandparents wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. His uncle is Conrad Hall, the cinematographer, Mm -hmm. uh, Academy Award cinematographer, won Academy Award for Butch Cassidy and for In Cold Blood. And uh, his mom was... French Tahitian. His father was English. Uh, Anyway, he spotted me and he pulled over. He said, hey, Bill, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm going to go see a new movie. And he looked at me like I was some kind of schmuck. He said, really? A movie? Man, two hours alone in the dark. He (laughs) says, you could be having your own adventures instead of watching somebody else's. And man, that flipped a switch in me. From that moment on, I scheduled an, an adventure somewhere around the planet uh, each year. The first hmm. one was uh, 1978. I went to the Galapagos Islands and to Machu Picchu in Peru. Wow. And so this became a, a tradition with me in my life to, to have adventures, to go places, to feed my wanderlust. And I had all these beautiful, all these beautiful photography books on Antarctica by the world's greatest photographers. And they all said the same thing, tries they could, they couldn't capture the color of what was down there because of the limitations of the chemicals and the emulsions in photography. And I thought, well, I don't have that problem. Anything I see, I can put down onto paper. So this this really uh, sparked my curiosity. And then I found out that the, this was 1989, the Antarctic Treaty was due to expire in 1991. Now this treaty is a remarkable document. It was created by President Eisenhower. We had something called the International Geophysical Year Uh, at the end of the 1950s. It was a year of international cooperation amongst the world's scientists. And it was so successful that Eisenhower did not want to see that spirit die. So he created the Antarctic Treaty that states that no country owns Antarctica. uh, All wildlife is protected. There's no commercial exploitation of the continent allowed, no mining, no oil drilling. All information is shared. Even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviets could come to any of our stations, unannounced, look at what we are doing and we could do the same with them. So it was this little oasis of sanity in the world. Yeah. Hmm. That's the word,
1: sanity. That's the word. Yeah.
2: Oh, man, when you're down there, you stop looking at the news because the rest of the world seems insane. Wow. It's crazy. So, ironically, it was the United States that was not going to renew the treaty in 1991 because the first president Bush wanted to open it up for oil drilling because he's a Texas oil man. I'm shaking when,
1: my head. You can't see this, but I'm shaking yeah, no, my I head, everybody.
2: It. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Well, we, did you capture that rarefied air, that light? Did you capture that amazing oh my God. light?
2: Let me give you an example. Uh, so I I thought, for one thing, I thought, I better go down before I'm. it's not possible for me to go down. So the cruise ships, they, they all go down at the same time because the Antarctic summer is a very narrow travel window. It's basically uh end of december to mid-february so i looked around and i i joined a a cruise ship that where the trip was being sponsored by the american museum of natural history in new york and i was not prepared for how spectacular this place was one night i was on the deck of the ship it was midnight the sky went from a lime green to an apricot orange the sea was mint green there were blue violet icebergs in the background and to the right of the ship, I was looking at an iceberg. And from below the surface of the water, there was a lemon yellow light emanating. Very bizarre. Wow. Really the weirdest stuff ever. <laughs> and it was it so blew me away that I thought, you know, I've got to do something to preserve this for my kids and my grandkids. And before I left, my friends would say, where are you going this year? I say Antarctica. And they'd say, oh, well, bring a lot of white. Or they would say, <laughs> uh, for all the ice yeah they say it's just a bunch of snow and ice why 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 would you want to go down there well it's so much more than that i saw so much wildlife uh whales and seals and penguins and and i thought well one thing i could do is i could educate the public as to how special this place is with a series of paintings depicting the beauty of antarctica and then uh, the more thought that i gave it i thought you know to make sure that every kid drags their parents to see this show half of the show is going to be prehistoric Antarctica. Uh Dinosaurs. So as soon as I got back from my first trip, I, I flew to Columbus, Ohio, to the Bird Polar Research Center, where Dr. David Elliott gave me a crash course in Antarctic paleontology. And I noticed the same names kept coming up over and over, Edwin Colbert being one of them. And when I got back home, I started to contact all these Antarctic paleontologists and began to get their feedback on the pictures that I was doing. And I did the first five paintings and contacted uh, Dr. Craig Black, who is the director of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Uh, He came over to see the paintings. He looked at them. He said, Bill, you've got your show. Mm. Yeah, the show is 45 oil paintings. And the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County traveled them around the world. Wow. Uh, And happily... Uh, pressure was applied on the United States by both the UK and Japan to resign the treaty. So the treaty got resigned, which protects it for another 50 years. But for me, that's not good enough. I wanna protect it forever. So I'm working with an organization called the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. And they're a small little umbrella group based in Washington, DC, coordinating all the efforts to preserve Antarctica from groups like Greenpeace and the Sierra Club and Nature Conservancy. And my goal is to make Antarctica the first world park, not national park, but world park and protect it forever. Hmm. Basically, it means extending the treaty
0: indefinitely forever. So, Bill, you're working on a series of paintings right now, completing this project that you
2: started years ago? Yes. Yeah. I started the project in 1988 or 9. And uh, is there just whenever I get some free time, I do another Antarctic painting. Where can we see the original 44 painting? You can see some of them on my website, williamstout.com. Oh, there's an great. Antarctica yeah. section on my website.
0: Great. Is that where there's the painting of the trilobite in the green seas? Yes, yeah. There's just something about that painting, Bill, uh, along with the, the Moses sword and the loon, and well, so much of your work, but somehow that, that trilobite in the green seas just really speaks to me. It's a beautiful painting.
2: the same effect on me too and and i think the power of that piece is its simplicity it's basically two values beautiful and i just it was a lucky day it's a genius
0: (laughs) of your work you know but uh i know you work with scientists all the time it's kind of funny uh, i was talking to my friend kirk johnson who has been a previous guest of ours he's at the smithsonian now and he says that he met you the first time in antarctica I don't know if you remember that, but that's what he told me the other day. So wow. He, you, it's like, he <laughs> no, was on one I, of the cruise I, ships, he and you were there as the artist. Oh, uh,
2: oh! so he must have been on the American Museum cruise. Yeah, was, yeah right, he was on that, that makes cruise sense. all those years and ago. And Mike Novacek was on that, too. Now, I'm going to continue
1: name-dropping here. Uh, sure. Bill, you've you've worked with Spielberg. You've worked with George Lucas. Uh, it's absolutely astonishing the cultural influences uh, that that you've worked with. Take us through uh, some of the Spielberg and and Lucas introductions. Del Toro. Del Toro. Toro, And I'm not even going to get into uh, Wizards and Fireside Theater, but go on.
2: (laughs) Okay, so it was mid-1970s, and it was at the height of my doing movie posters. And I, I worked on the ad campaigns for about 120 motion pictures. Wow. Wow. And a friend of mine, Bob Greenberg, was working as a production assistant on Conan the Barbarian. And I was a huge Conan fan. I'd read all the Robert E. Howard Conan books and everything, and was a big fan of the Rosetta paintings that were on the covers. And he said, Man, you should see what Ron Cobb is doing. I go, Ron Cobb, hey, he's a political cartoonist. He did the, the political cartoons for the LA Free Press back in the 60s. He said, Well, yeah, he's our production designer. Really? Political cartoonist is a production designer for. Conan, this this I gotta see. This is uh, this is amazing to me, but I was so busy I couldn't get away. Uh, I remember there was one week I opened up the calendar section of Los Angeles Times and I had eight movie posters in that one week. Mm. You did really? Yeah. So I finally got a break in my schedule, but instead of going to the Conan offices, I went to the ABA. That's the American Bookseller Association. It was an event that used to take place every year, usually either in New York or Los Angeles. Happened to be in L.A. that year. And it's every publisher and every editor in the entire United States all in one room. It's a great place if you're an illustrator, bring your portfolio and go booth to booth to booth and pick up work for the rest of the year. Wow, It's fantastic. So I went there, and the first person I ran into by sheer coincidence was Ron Cobb. And Ron said, look, Bill, you are my first choice of who I want to work with in the art department on Conan but I have an an arrangement and an agreement with the writer director, John Milius. He has veto power over anybody I wanna bring in. And I have veto power over anybody he wants to bring into the art department. Would you mind dropping off your portfolio for John to see? And I thought, well, that might be fun. See how movies are made. (laughs) And so I went in the next day and Milius happened to be there. He looked through my portfolio. There was a a story I had illustrated for heavy metal uh, that was written by Harlan Ellison called Shattered Like a Glass Goblin. And he remembered that story and really liked that story. Heavy Metal he fl- was
1: a very trippy magazine. Oh, man. And oh, the movie. Nice. The movie, too.
2: Yeah. So he flipped through the rest of it, hand me my book back. And, and John's a sort of bigger-than-life character. And he started to walk out the room. And as he walked out of the room, he turned his head in the doorway and barked, hire him. <laughs> hire the kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in to talk to Buzz Feichens, who was our line producer, and Buzz told me how much money I would be making on Conan the Barbarian. And I nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising. But I thought, well, it's only for two weeks. It'll be fun just to work on a movie and see how what that process is. What I learned later is you always get hired for two weeks because they want to find out whether or not you're an asshole. If you're an asshole, after the two weeks are over, they let you go and there's no hard feelings but if you're good at what you do, my two weeks turned into two years. Wow. Now, when I started there, we had this incredibly bright receptionist. Her name was Kathleen Kennedy. No way. Spielberg. Uh, Yeah, Amblin Entertainment, yeah. Yeah, within two months, she was Milius' personal assistant, and two months after that, she was Steven Spielberg's personal assistant. We were sharing offices with Steven Spielberg because John Milius was producing 1941 for Steven. And so, Stephen's office was right across from uh, the office of mine and Ron Cobb's office. And so we'd work on Conan during the day, put the pencils down at six o'clock and run across the hall into Stephen's office and kick around ideas for his next film, which was called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. So (laughs) in my naivete, I thought it would always be like this. (laughs) Didn't you do storyboards for Raiders? So I did. I I storyboarded the sequence uh, where Indy fights the Nazi on the truck. Oh, wow, that's a great I just did sequence. that as, in my spare time as a favor to to Stephen, and then uh, it became quickly obvious that my Conan work was going to take my all my time, so I I couldn't work on both films, and so I recommended he get my my studio mate Dave Stevens to do the storyboards for Raiders of the Lost Art. Dave later created the Rocketeer. Oh, that's a great great comic, and I love the movie. Great movie too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Connelly. So even though Steven and John Milius were friends, they were also rivals. They had this sort of one-upmanship contest going on through their, their life. Whatever one had, the other one wanted. So <laughs> John Milius had Ron Cobb and I. So Steven Spielberg tried to get us to jump ship and leave Conan to work on Raiders, of the Lost Ark. Well, he really wanted Cobb really bad. And Ron came in one day and I said, Ron, you look shell-shocked. What happened? He goes. Stephen, he said, if I would leave Conan and be the production designer for Raiders of the Lost Ark, he let me direct the sequel to Close Encounters. I said, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, are you (laughs) kidding me? (laughs) I said, Ron, what did you say? He said, He said, for one, I I can't, I can't do that. How am I going to direct? I've never directed anything. (laughs) And Stephen said, Well, I'm directing today. Come by and I'll show you. You know, Wait a if you
1: there wasn't. There was no sequel to Close Encounters.
2: Ah, but there was. Was there? Yes. No. So he knows okay. this too. So, so <laughs> you heard it here. So, so Stephen acted like he could teach you to direct in one day, which I thought was hilarious, and Ron thought was hilarious. But anyway, Ron turned him down. And he, we both felt we needed to remain loyal to John Millis. John had given us both tremendous breaks in our, our career in film actually started our career in film. So when we got back from Europe from making Conan, uh, Stephen called up Ron, he said, look, I still would like you to direct the sequel to Close Encounters, even though you didn't production design Raiders for me. And so Ron uh, got together with John Sayles. They wrote a great script called Night Skies about an allegedly true shootout by two different groups of aliens over a farm in Nebraska. And uh, Rick Baker started building the creatures for the film. And about that time, I came by to visit Ron I said, just to see how he was doing. I said, Ron, you look miserable. What's going on? He goes, Ugh, it's Steven. He's finished Raiders. Now he's turned his attention to my film. And he he keeps, every day he changes something. He's made so many changes now, it doesn't feel like my movie anymore. I would give anything to get off this film. And a few days later, Spielberg came into Ron's office and said, Ron, I don't know how to tell you this, but I got to direct this movie. I will give you a point in the film and (laughs) $10,000 if you'll walk away. And Ron said, great. Took him up on the deal. Nine months later, they went to see the cast and crew screening of this film. And Ron was, oh, thank God I didn't make this movie. It is so maudlin, so overly sentimental. The movie was called E.T., the (laughs) extraterrestrial. No way. Yeah. So Uh about eight months later, uh, Ron and his wife, Robin, are looking at the Hollywood trade papers, and it says E.T. has now grossed over $400 million. And Ron's wife said, Ron, uh, don't, you have a don't point we in have that? a point in that film? <laughs> <laughs> and so Ron looked through their papers and found the agreement with Stephen, called up Universal, and Universal said, oh, thank God. This is the first verifiable point we can pay off on. We'll have a messenger over with your first check within an hour. And their first check was for $800,000. Ron had one of Steven's points, so that included merchandising, toys, DVDs, oh, Blu-rays. Oh, my
1: goodness. So, within
2: a very short amount of time, Ron made $10 million for not directing E.T.
1: Elliot.
0: Okay, now that's a pretty good story. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you, you have designed certain creatures, like you did the bug that's in uh, Men in Black, Edward the right. Bug, right? Wait, and which big, bug is Andrew.
2: that? Wait, tell me which bug and, is that? Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio turns into, he plays a character named Edgar, and he turns into oh, right, this big right. bug at the end right. of the film. Right, right That right. was an interesting situation because I was working for Spielberg at the time, designing a, a series of uh, video arcade clubs called the GameWorks. Mm. And I get a panicked call from Industrial Light and Magic, and they said, uh, Bill, we just spent nine months creating and animating this big bug at the end of Men in Black. We showed it to Steven Spielberg and he said, nope, not scary enough. <laughs> uh, somebody here said that he loves your stuff. Would you mind redesigning that creature? But not too much so we don't have to start <laughs> over from zero, from ground zero. And I started sketching while I was on the phone, just on a random piece of paper. Scary bugs. Next scary day bug. I sent him, I sent them uh, drawings and designs and that became the big it bug is, creature.
1: It is so of off. Not off-putting, but it is so weird to hear you be talking about the greatest director of all time. As oh, Steven said this, Steven said that. <laughs> Are you still in touch with
2: him? Uh, whenever I work for him, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: we don't. We don't call each other on the phone or anything. Yeah.
0: Well, no, uh, that's I'm not so we, how it works. We do want no. to get him on the show someday, you know. But because uh,
2: we'll he is but- a paleo nerd. Yeah,
0: he is a paleo nerd. I think he is a paleo nerd. But let me ask you this. In Pan's Labyrinth, we have, what creature did you do? The one with the, the eyeballs in the hand or the other?
2: I wish I had done that one. Because I think uh, that's one of the greatest, most original creatures I've ever seen. That is, a, Guillermo that... himself designed that guy.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah.
2: Uh, I designed uh, the, I did the initial designs for the fawn creature. Oh, that was Pan, beautiful. Pan himself. I designed the main set where the film takes place. Wow. I designed, originally that big frog was going to be a stone frog with all kinds of carvings on it, so I designed the original stone frog. And then I designed a, a, a character that got cut from the film. At one point, there's this little childlike, uh, vaporous figure that comes out and approaches the little girl, and it, it looks almost almost like a, a, a fetus head and face with large luminous eyes and its body is is almost like it's made out of sand or smoke and it keeps rising and falling and reforming and he's got long delicate fingers and he approaches you and then when he gets close a horse skull pops out of its mouth and bites you Whoa! <laughs> so horse skulls are scary
0: let me ask you this. Since uh, that's on the cutting room floor, is there any way that uh, we could get a peek at that or have it on our website?
2: I think if you go to the main Pan's Labyrinth websites, they've got all my illustrations there. Plus, they're also oh. in the books on Pan's Labyrinth. Oh,
0: okay. That's good to know. we been talking about all these great movies, but you also are a master muralist. And some of your murals, to behold them, uh, you have them at the uh, Houston Museum. San and-
1: Diego Museum of Natural History. Those are
2: the San Diego two,
0: Zoo, The San Diego and, Zoo, uh, Disney World, or Disney. Yes.
2: Which yeah, Walt is Disney, Disney World at uh, Walt Disney's Animal Kingdom. That's actually my of all the work that I do. That's my favorite. I love painting murals, murals yeah. and comic books.
0: Yeah, and I've I've got your beautiful book here, uh, Prehistoric Life Murals, and I've been reading through this and your process in that, and how you balance the art and the science and. And I was lucky enough to go to the San Diego Museum of Natural History and behold these beautiful paintings. And what? I, and I was reading early on how you basically gave them a free slideshow and uh, of your work and kind of before you had to bid on the murals. Right. But this took you years and years, and it was some of them were struggles. Can you describe some of these murals and what you were asked to do in that?
2: So after painting my first murals for the Houston Museum of Natural Science, I, I just fell head over heels in love with mural painting. It's it's the most fun of anything that I do. And I, I think it's also the most important aspect of everything I do because like the Charles R. Knight murals, those murals are going to be up long after I'm gone. So it's a real artistic legacy. Yeah. Uh, so at all the SVP meetings, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meetings, anyone who would listen, I would say, you know, I really love painting murals. If you ever have murals come up at your museum, please let me know. Well, it paid off because uh, a paleontologist working for the San Diego Museum called me up and she said, Bill, uh, we're revamping the entire dinosaur or prehistoric hall at the museum. and And they're proposing that murals be a part of it. I said, "Okay, so... I contacted the museum. I said, I would like to come down and give a free lecture to your staff on the importance of murals. <laughs> and, and which is exactly what I did. It was a real soft sell. Uh, at, at the end, I said, Look, whether or not you hire me to do the murals, that's neither here nor there. I think having murals is incredibly important for a museum. And I had brought down two samples. Uh, one was a a really quick painting I had done. I found out that uh, what dinosaurs they wanted in their dinosaur mural, so I did a really quick, big horizontal painting of that to show how colorful it would be and to show how lively the dinosaurs would be. This wouldn't wasn't just going to be dinosaur portraits or posed dinosaurs. Right. This was going to be showing how the dinosaurs lived their lives. And I also brought a huge plein air painting I did. A plein air painting is where you go out and actually paint on site. And uh, usually... Wait, wait, what uh, is this? So what... A- a plein air painting, plain air, usually plain air. the plein air, air paintings are, are little tiny canvases, usually about eight by 10 or nine by 12 right. inches. And you you just uh, select a scene and you paint it on the spot. It takes an hour, two hours. You can't paint longer than that because the sun is going across the sky, changing all the shadows. Right. So I had done this very ambitious, big plein air painting of Eaton Canyon, which is a nature center that's near my house. And I painted at the same time of day for five days straight. So I had the same light each time until the, the painting was finished. Well, it turned out that the staff at the San Diego museum, they're huge plein air fans. So when I showed <laughs> them this painting, they not only love the style, but they, they said, well, he can hit the ground running. We're not going to have to teach him what California landscapes look like. He wow. already knows. Wow. So I bid on the job and I got the job. The job was 12 murals. Wow. And. But you know what I love is that you do the research, you do the serious research, you do the anatomy, you, you, you know what you're doing before you jump into it. That's where my science math background really comes in handy. That's what <laughs> differentiates me from a lot of the other paleo artists. The problem with paleo art is usually you get great art and crappy science or, or crappy art, but great science.
1: Well, right. I got to say both of you two are great art and great science. Both uh, of you. I would well, agree,
2: especially with, with Ray. Yeah, you know, Ray,
1: I, I, you've done some serious murals too. In fact, didn't you do I the uh, the National the NOAA building? Where where's that? Is that in Monterey? Well, I
0: have a I have an outdoor mural that's in the Pacific Grove right now. At the on the NOAA building there, the former NOAA building. It's actually moved now to to uh, keep that building as is and to restore the murals. But but as Bill says in the book, and this is a great book because it's written in first person. You're describing the process. You work with paleontologist Lynette Gillette.
2: Yes. Right? So one of, one of my demands as a muralist is uh, I want a paleontology consultant throughout the entire process. Critique. I want one person, not ah. a group. Because <laughs> I, I know what happens when there's a group, then you get two opposing views and now you can't decide which one is right. But
0: that's right. so funny because that's exactly what I did when I entered in doing a NOAA job. I said, I don't want a committee. I'm not gonna work art by committee. Give me one person I can have a dialogue with, not that's 20 so people. That's so smart. So Lynette was your point person there? She. Uh...
2: Yes, she was fantastic because uh, she's a well-established, terrific paleontologist. Plus she knew everybody in the in the field of paleontology. When it came time to do the giant ground sloth, for example, she put me in contact with the two greatest experts on giant ground sloths in the world. And so it was fantastic. Just fantastic. Great. So
0: if you had the experience you must have where you paint a creature, you do all the research, and then <laughs> two years later, there's a discovery like, uh-oh, no, we're wrong.
2: Yeah, we're wrong. It had feathers.
0: It <laughs> had yeah, the feathers. And I know that actually you, you painted large a lambiosaur because that's one of the dinosaurs. Uh, what is dinosaurs. that? It's a lambiosaurus, a duck dinosaur. Right. And, uh, with an
2: interesting head crest. With a oh, very right. interesting head
0: crest, very funky, cool. Because you know, there's not a lot of dinosaurs that are known from California. But but no. you were down to the point of where you were counting all the scoots on the back of the, uh, of the duck build. You would always make sure that oh, yeah. it was as accurate as you could get it. But what do you do when we find out later that maybe there were there was an even weirder head crest? You sneak you may...
1: in the middle of the night and you retouch
0: it. <laughs> Do you just leave it alone and like that's that's the art that's the understanding that we had at the time, or is there a part of you that wants to sneak into
2: the building well i I explained to people that this is why paleontology more than a lot of sciences is a really living science it's changing almost on a daily basis. I subscribe to a a notification program uh, they notify me every time there's a new dinosaur species found uh ah. that's one it's one at least one a week hmm. We're in a golden age of paleontology where the discoveries are just staggering and fantastic. So uh, one of the things, I see it as a teaching moment. You can say, look, we used to think that dinosaurs looked like this, but now we understand they look like this. It's evolving, it's changing. And maybe you, children, will become paleontologists who discover that uh, entirely new views of dinosaurs. So,
0: It's a living, breathing science about dead stuff,
2: which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. So, Ray, Ray, I I gotta know, what kind of paint did you use on your murals,
0: your outdoor murals? Well, you know, well, we use acrylic paint, in short. Yeah, acrylics for the uh, the outdoor stuff. And I I basically work with acrylics, and I've done a few oil paintings in my time, but I know that all your San Diego murals are done with oil Oil
2: paint. Oil on canvas, yeah.
0: But the other thing, too, it's so different, as you say in the book, too, than sitting in my studio, working with and naked, just moving my wrist, it's such a physical activity when you have yeah. a forty-foot wall. And then when I read deeper into your uh, into your book, you have a crew that you work with that is actually uh, Themescape, and then um, your fellow Enrique v- Vidal, who uh, yeah. they would you do the quarter scale, they would scale it up and do the underpainting, then you would come in. It's it's monumental. And, and would do you, you scale it up as
2: like an overhead projector type thing? Is that how you scale it up? Uh that's how they scaled it up. Yeah. Overhead right. projectors. Sometimes they would grid it and scale it up. Right. But uh yeah, those guys were fantastic to work with because they, they, they've been doing gigantic paintings their entire career. Uh they started out as billboard painters and then they do now they do giant graphics for uh theme parks and casinos.
0: And Has so it all they, done
2: Digital now? Is it all digital? Are
0: murals? Well, that's a thing the sad the thing,
2: is yeah, almost all the new murals are are digital. And I find that incredibly disappointing. After our murals were my murals were finished, uh, Lynette Gillette used to love to sit and and observe the public interacting with the exhibits. And she said she saw this one little old lady looking at my big mammoth mural, the one that's on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And she get a little closer and look at it, a little closer, look at it. Finally, she got up just a few inches away, and she shrieked and jumped back. She says, it's a real painting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, I think that visitors can really, I hope that they're still savvy enough to recognize uh, real paint and, you know, a digital reproduction. And I know one of the things, too, that you do in your large murals is, and I loved doing this as a kid, you
2: hide a lot of stuff in there, too, don't you? Oh, so that's you look for the closer, kids. Because as a kid, yeah. I, I used to love to find the hidden animals or find the yeah. hidden creatures and stuff. And so, like, in one mural, there's seven hidden uh, snakes. In another okay. one, there's seven hidden lizards. There's
0: seven lizards in the sloth painting. Now, see, I want yes. to go there. And I learned that I, I hide cheeseburgers in mine. So I'd say find them. <laughs> And if you tell a kid, find well, the, one the here, nine cheeseburgers. Here, you've got a, a
1: clothespin, you've got a pencil, you've got a cheeseburger. <laughs> There's a cheeseburger over there. That, that's a that's a Ray Troll
2: thing there.
1: We'll do a quick screenshot, and then Ray has a question, and then I have a question, and then we'll, okay. we'll wrap it up. Okay, so... Bill, do you have a dinosaur or anything near you, some
0: cool artifact right near you? Near me? Uh, a book cover? A toy? Or a, a skull? A
1: You
2: know a skull? what? I'll go, I'll go grab the, the painting I'm working on right now.
1: Yes!
0: Um, yeah, I... His, his house is going to be full of cool stuff. Oh, wow.
1: Uh-oh. Wow. Oh, wow, wow. Oh. oh, is that a Lystrosaurus? What do so, we have in there? It's a Lystrosaurus, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, hey. just lean in a bit, sir. Lean in a bit. A little closer oh, sure. there. There we go. And I'll just go, here we go. Three, two, one. Done. Cool. Okay, Ray, do you want to ask your question? Here we go with
0: the last question. Second to last question. Second to last question, that's right. My last question. So, Bill, you spent a lot of time visualizing the prehistoric past. If you could actually time travel and actually go back into the past, what time period would you go to and what would you want to see?
2: Lake Cretaceous, I, I really, really want to see what a real Tyrannosaurus rex looks like. I bet it's completely different from what we've thought. Really? You think we're wrong? (laughs) You think, wait,
1: you think Spielberg is wrong with with the most recent Jurassic Park? I mean, uh, come on, he's got the top paleontologists as advisors.
2: I've worked as a paleontology advisor. When you work as a paleontology advisor, they just want the name credit so they can say later, look, see, it's educational. We had an actual paleontologist working on it. They completely ignore you. (laughs)
0: Really? That's pretty much what Jack Horner told us when he advised. But but can you can you give us a just a fantasy description of what maybe this T Rex might look like in your?
2: Well, uh, the latest information. I mean, the the beautiful fossil, uh, Tyrannosaurs. One of the early Tyrannosaurs from China. He's got a big plume on the end of its tail. Mm. That fascinates me and then uh probably had small sort of uh hair like feathers over its body Uh, some paleontologists say that that's just the young that eventually they shed uh, those feathers when they get become adults i don't know if that's true or not but i'd also love to see what the coloration was right boy that i'm sure that'll be a shocker i i I doubt if it's if it's a dull gray or a dull green
1: Right, Like, you know, I like our
2: toys from the 50s, yeah. you know?
1: Well, or an I, iguana, an iguana.
0: I bet you they might be more psychedelic than we could even imagine, man. Yeah.
2: You I know? mean, you look at a day gecko. I mean, that's got a full-color palette on its back. Yeah, but
1: think about it, though, gentlemen. All the reptiles that are colorful are in the tropics. And the ones that are in the deserts are dull and muted, usually, except the Gila monster, but still.
2: No, well, when I was in Africa, I saw spectacularly colored lizards in the desert. Regions.
1: Yeah. Okay, so there, All right. there, were, so there, uh, agama right.
2: lizards that have a and they'd have a magenta head with an ultramaroon, yeah. ultramarine blue body, yeah. or have an orange head with a, a really bright leaf green body. Uh, gorgeous. And have you painted a T. Rex like that? uh No, I I paint my coloration tends to be extremely conservative, because I'm already suspect since I do fantasy art amongst the paleontologists Oh right right. so I, I don't want to be seen as the wacky guy who doesn't know anything about paleontology
0: wait I, i'm I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm very suspect too they don't trust me because i do these wacky t-shirts and stuff
1: bill so my question is going to be uh what advice would you give to a a student or or a a, a young adult who who wants to possibly go into art or or mix art and science what would be your your advice to uh someone just starting out their career who, who likes science and loves art
2: well i wrote uh, an article for uh prehistoric times magazine called uh the 10 rules of being a paleo artist first wow. rule is keep your day job <laughs> <laughs> there's just not enough work out there to sustain an entire career of doing paleo art. There there's not. That's the the frank, honest truth. So uh my advice is if you plan to go down that path and, and do paleo art, make sure the science is as good as the art and make sure the art is as good as the science. Because that's usually the weak, the weak link in most paleo art. Is one or the other is good and the other is not. Right. Brilliant. So I, I recommend not going to the really expensive art schools like Cal Arts and Art Center. I mean, their their tuition now is like 50 60 grand a year. That's insane. You're going to be paying that off the rest of your life. That's that's nuts. I've had relatives who want to go into the arts, and I recommend that they go to Cal State Long Beach, which which is a state-run school, so the tuition's not outrageous, and they have a fantastic art department. Right. So I've done lectures up in San Francisco at the I think it's the Art Institute, and they have 20,000 students. I'm thinking, where in the hell are 20,000 graduates gonna find work? Right. There's just not that much work out there. Right. The, the main advice I give to young budding artists is, Norman Rockwell had a great autobiography called My Adventures as an Illustrator. And one of the things he revealed is that at the top of his easel, carved out of wood, it says 100% and it's, it's gold leafed as well. And what that means to me is that when you do a piece no matter how much or how little you've negotiated for it once the negotiations are over you do hundred percent of your absolute best work it does a number of things it makes you a better artist quicker it also delights your client because they're not expecting to get that level of quality from whatever they negotiated for and so the 100% rule, I think, is really, really important. Well, plus, it gives yourself a feeling
1: of integrity.
2: Also, years later, you can go back, and if the piece wasn't successful, you can say, Well, I did my best. Mm. Whereas, you, you're not looking at something where, where you're thinking, Man, uh, I really, I really rushed this one. I should have done this better. And yeah, there's no regrets.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, what an incredible interview. Wow. Wow
2: oh, thanks
0: yeah, thank you Bill and uh, I know oh. you are tortured by some of your work um that we I was just reading more in the mural book here that you were working in that one coastal piece and it just you were struggling with it, and you went away to Alaska, came back and had a new perspective on what to do with the landscape behind it, and you gave it a hundred percent and it is so thrilling to see your real work and thank you for sharing those. A little glimpse of your antarctic work there today too oh
2: thanks yeah those are the pieces i showed you are three new antarctica paintings i'm working on
0: really and that that's for an exhibit coming up here in uh, another couple years or soon
2: or oh uh probably when the books comes out i'll I'll tour the paintings with the book what does the book book do a good way to sell books I gotta finish. The, I gotta finish the paintings first. Then I'll I'll let you know when the book's coming
0: out. Okay. All right. All right. We won't press you to do that. But all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely a thrill talking to you. And um, I I'm still a uh, one of your number one fans, man. A fanboy well, always.
2: Thanks for including me in the group of paleo nerds. That's an awesome group.
0: <laughs> okay. Bye.
1: Bye, Bill. Thanks for joining us, man. Hey, Ray. That was great. Everybody we talk to now seem to be rubbing shoulders with the great filmmakers of uh, of our time. <laughs> well,
0: you know, I think we've tapped into a whole um, ecosystem, as it were, and uh, we're tapped into it and we see how this all works. And that someone like Bill Stout, William Stout, has been an integral part of uh, that whole scene. So
1: many things. What did he say that E.T. was a, a, oh, that was a Close Encounters uh sequel?
0: Yeah, did sequel, he? sequel. <laughs> Shows oh you my. how things evolve as they go along, yeah. 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 That's a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to have one point or something. No kidding, yeah.
1: no kidding.
0: Hey, maybe people get in the ground floor of Paleo Nerds. We'll sell points.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. A point means... One percent of a gross number or one percent of a net number? And many times studios hide that profits showing that there's it's a loss. So right. some people will never get their residual. But you know what? So what's one percent of a dollar from a hundred people?
0: A penny.
1: No, a dollar.
0: Oh sorry. <laughs> Oh, man. All right.
1: Anyways, (laughs) uh, but as I say, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Exactly. Don't
0: don't send us your money yet uh, for Paleo Nerds. We're doing this out of love, man. Yeah,
1: we are. We are not doing this for any kind of money, no. Thank goodness. So anyway, we got some Paleo Nerd t-shirts, which uh, we're going to give away to some of our uh, winners. We got some contests coming up on Facebook and stuff, and we'll give some of those t-shirts away.
0: All right. Well, that's cool. Didn't know that yet. Uh, I'm not <laughs> clued in on all this from our various, our vast... uh, uh That's yeah. because
1: you're the artist and and I'm the editor and, and co-producer. Well, you know,
0: I do lose track of a lot of stuff. And actually, you know, that's what was amazing about uh, William Stout. I wanted to ask him, like, do you answer all your emails? Do you send out all the... He's got so many irons in the fire, it's, it's I know. incredible. You know? I know,
1: I mean, record albums and films, uh, comic books, paleo art, museums, it is prolific.
0: And I think trading cards is a lot of what uh, his income is. You know, just Really? Yes, yeah, supported from uh, trading cards. Let me ask you,
1: you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. What is the greatest income producing source of your art? Well, basically the t-shirts.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the retail sales are those. My beautiful wife, Michelle, runs the store. And uh, Right. And uh, that's what most people know my work from. And actually, I think most people maybe know Bill's stuff from, um, you know, the trading cards and uh, that first book and, you know, the uh, new dinosaurs or the dinosaurs. That's the one.
1: Well, uh, I probably own twenty of your T-shirts and your hoodies, and uh, and I paid for them, Ray. I don't. I don't think I've ever asked for a free one.
0: There's a special ventriloquist tax that we actually put on. <laughs> you know, so uh, you're anyway, paying more was, than the average guy.
1: That was great. So listen, uh, if you like what we do, please tell your friends. Please go to our Instagram and Facebook and like us. Uh, please go to paleo nerds on itunes and and review us we'd like some reviews and if you want to ask us any questions or have an idea for a guest suggestion you can go to paleo com and contact us and our web yeah. admin karina will be happy to respond and we respond to every single inquiry don't we ray
0: we certainly do. I've been writing back to some of the fans of the show and we are building, uh, we're getting a fan base out there. So I try to get back to people. So yeah, there's a, an email link there on the website at paleoners.com.
1: Yeah. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see more of.
0: Yeah, as I said, uh, more of the praise and less of the dagger <laughs> there. So I I need uh, affirmation all the time. I'm very, very needy person. I know play.
1: because you were unloved as a child. Oh, there are six of us in the family,
0: and oh, that's anyways, right. That's yeah, right. I was the middle kid.
1: All right, Ray. Well, what a great episode! This is so much fun, and I'm going to be uh, signing off here from uh, as we as we did this recording today. We went from blue skies. I have mottled gray outside now and it looks like it's gonna rain. Do you know anything about rain? Rain? Well, you
0: know, actually, what's funny is that we started out just the opposite. Started out kind of cloudy and rainy and now the sun is shining, Dave. So, signing off for beautiful, sunny Ketchikan by the Sea, it's me, Rachel, saying, See you later. See you
2: later. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.